Thank you very much. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 in our Bibles. I do want to say thank you along with Pastor Burden for all of you who came and worked yesterday. Um, I had several good reports of all the work that you were able to accomplish and the great spirit you had. Sorry I couldn't be here with you. Uh, I've been on an antibiotic since Wednesday morning and uh, got a little breathing treatment. <clears throat> so uh, I'm not taking any medication today for your benefit. But uh, it's funny, this morning Cindy, Cindy got up this morning and she said, do, do you remember giving me a kiss in the middle of last night? I said, yeah, I have no recollection of that. <laughs> So it's for your benefit that I'm not on meds for the morning. I was uh, supposed to sing with this group, and uh, it's it's painful when you want to serve the Lord in a particular way and you aren't able to do that. Um, So I'll encourage you, uh, while you're able to serve the Lord, take the opportunity to serve Him, okay? While you're able to love Him. Take the opportunity to love him and show him that you love him. And, of course, you can do, we can do that in so many different ways, can't we? Uh, we can serve him and worship him in so many different ways. I hope that you take the opportunity to do that. This is a very special week. And, um, of course, uh, Friday will be uh, is a day we remember as the day when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and died for our sins. He was buried, and then he rose again the third day, Sunday morning. And uh, as the group just sang about it, it's a week to consider what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us, him suffering in our place. Tonight's a communion service. We'll gather together as a congregation. We'll, we'll obey the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper and remembering what his body being broken for us, what that, how that benefited us, and how his blood, without the shedding of his blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. There'd be, we'd never been bought back. We'd, we'd never be declared righteous. We'd, we'd, there'd be no justification Uh, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. And so it's a very special week. Uh, We remember how Jesus suffered, and he did. He suffered immensely uh, for you and for me. God, in human flesh, he came to die to take our sins away. And um, we'll remember his anguish. We remember his death. We remember him taking all of our sins upon his body. And... uh, all of our rebellion and hatred. And wickedness, sin of all kinds, so many sins represented in this room. And yet, uh, he took them upon himself so that he could take them away from us. So that he could take our sins away. So that he could account to us his righteousness. And that's what's really represented in this room this morning. Not sinfulness, uh, though we do sin, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ is represented in this room. That's what's so glorious about a local church. Unlike anything else, 
Um, it's not that we never sin, it's that we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, look at our text, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, this is, a, I think, a wonderful passage of Scripture, special to me. I'm going to read beginning in verse number 1. And, uh, and I want you to answer the question as we make our way through the passage this morning is, what is your response to the crucifixion of Jesus? Or maybe even maybe a better question might be, what is your preparation? How, how do you prepare? What role do you play in preparing for the crucifixion? of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that's already been done once for all, never to be crucified again. Uh, him never to die again, but to live forever and to rule and reign for all of eternity. But, but how might we prepare? How might we prepare for this Friday? How might, we make, how might we go through this week in preparing our hearts in remembering what he what he has done for us. Look at verse number 1 of Matthew 26. I'm going to read down through verse number 16. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now that all these sayings would go back, I think, to chapter 25 at least. Maybe chapters 25, 24, 25. And uh, it was a sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ was preaching called the Olivet Discourse. And... Um, he had been preaching for all of those, those two chapters. In verse number one, the latter part, it says, after he'd finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. So that would have been starting on Friday. And the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. And so in verse two, Jesus makes... A prophecy. He really says something that I don't think they really had understood at all, let alone fully understood. But Jesus was saying, in two days, the Son of Man is going to be dead. He's telling them, I'm going to die. Now, he's told them this before, and they haven't gotten it. Look at verse number 3. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the, place, under the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted, they are consorting, they're together, and they, that they might take Jesus by trickery, by subtlety, and kill him. And they said, not on the feast day, unless there be an uproar among the people. So they're saying, but we can't do this for at least eight days, because we got all these people from Galilee, we've got all these people and. Uh, many scholars think that there would have, the, the city of Jerusalem would swell by two million plus people okay, during this time of year. Jesus was quite popular at this point in his ministry. He was quite popular among some. Verse number five. And they said, not at the feast day, lest there be an uproar, there be a riot among the people. Verse six. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, it would have been nard, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat while he's eating there. And when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? They look at Mary, 
and his disciples, and John tells us that Judas Iscariot was the leading voice in this, but all the disciples chimed in, the Bible seems to indicate, and they all agreed with one another that what Mary was doing was a complete, complete and utter waste of resources. That her worship, that her show of love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ was an absolute waste. What a discouraging statement, don't you think? What if we were to look at one another and how you are loving the Lord, what you're giving for him out of a heart of genuine, sincere love and adoration for your Savior? What if a fellow brother or sister in Christ looked at you and said, you are, you are wasting your life. Do you realize what you're giving up? Could have been, you could use your talents and abilities your time, your resources, your energy in a better way for God. By the way, it's, it's not our business to cast that kind of judgment on one another. Verse 9, for this, for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So they're seemingly noble. Of course, we know from Judas, um, Jesus tells Judas he's a thief. So he wasn't going to give it to any poor people anyway. Verse 10. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? Or why are you putting this burden upon her? That's what he tells tells them. Why are you burdening this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. The idea is an excellent ministry. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. And that tells me that Mary knew that he was going to die, that the disciples didn't. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time, uh, that would have been Saturday, he sought opportunity to betray Jesus. And so my question to you is the same. Um... What is your role in the preparation for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, we can't go back in time before he died for you and for me, but as I look at this passage, there's, there's the men who hate Jesus, and they're actually conniving. Isn't it ridiculous to think that they thought they could trick him? It's so foolish. But they're actually conniving out of a heart of hatred and rejection for Jesus, and they want to kill him. I don't know that there's anybody here this morning, and that's your heart. I also see in the heart of Mary a heart of adoration and love and worship. And you and I can have that heart this week. And then there's the heart of Judas Iscariot, of betrayal. He claimed to love him, and he actually betrays him with a kiss greets him as teacher, and betrays him with a kiss. He claims to love Jesus, but he betrays him. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Help us as we look at your word this morning. I pray that your spirit might move in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would teach us your word. I pray that you'd bring great conviction in our hearts where is necessary. And elsewhere, Lord, I pray that you'd bring great encouragement. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take his sword and that, um, as he can only do, that he would skillfully move it throughout our being to help us discern what are the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that he would handle your word as only he can, like a balm, like a salve, like a healing ointment, that that he might bring healing to hearts in this room where it is needed. Father, I pray that our hearts would be prepared this week to worship you and love you and to uh, glorify you as we remember your great sacrifice for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse number 2 again, if you would. It says, Jesus is speaking. He says, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover. So Jesus is saying this on what would appear to us to be Wednesday. And he's saying, After two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. He's really saying, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. And I want to tell you right up front, before we get into these different preparations or different responses that you and I can have to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I want, right up front, I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to emphasize to you that Jesus' death was by no means an accident. I've told you before about when I was growing up as a child, um, I think Charleston Heston played in a movie, and I can remember watching it and uh, being so mad at the Roman soldiers uh, for crucifying Jesus, being so mad at the Jewish people, um, being so mad at Pontius Pilate. You know, what was he thinking? You know, why doesn't he do something about all of this? But as I've grown older and as I've looked at the Word of God, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that while all of those individuals played a role in the preparation or, in the, or, or as participants in Jesus' death, there is no doubt in my mind that God ordained it to be so. He ordered it to be so. He sent his Son into the world to die for the sins of all of mankind. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus actually speaks to, the, to his Father and says, a body... Hast thou prepared me? So God, Jesus knew this, God had prepared a body for Jesus. It was God's intent that Jesus would die for your sins and for mine. And, and it's obvious to me when I look at this passage, and I don't want you to get, us to get so bogged down in these wicked men, they killed Jesus. Uh, they played a role, and hateful men played a role, but God gave his son to die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus' death was no accident at, at all. It was ordered by God. Now, uh, people, and really Satan, had been trying to kill Jesus from the very beginning. Can you remember the first time, uh, what, when's the first time in your memory that you remember Jesus was, uh, people tried to kill him, or an individual tried to kill him, not really knowing who he was? Can you remember who, who it was? It was King Herod. And um, 
The very first time we see that in the Word of God is King Herod uh, it tries to kill all those baby boys, two years of age and younger. And he slaughters a great many of them in an effort to kill Jesus. But do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 18? He said, no man, speaking of his own life, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, Jesus said. I have power to lay it down, speaking of his life, and I have power to take it again. And I, I love how he ends that. He says, this commandment have I received of my father, always in submission to the will of his father. In John chapter 19, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus somewhat angrily, when Jesus wouldn't answer Pilate, <clears throat> Pilate said, speakest thou not unto me? Why aren't you answering me? You know, Pilate, being a politician, a bit arrogant, said Jesus, speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? And really what Pilate was saying, I have the power to put you to death or I have the power to give you your freedom. And Jesus answered that. And he said, thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. So who was in control of that situation? Pilate? No, Pilate wasn't in control. He thought he, was, he thought he was. And Jesus was saying to Pilate, you have no control over my death, even if you are the governor. And to help us comprehend the timing of Jesus' death, uh, again, remember with me, the first attempt on Jesus' life was right after he was born. Herod massacred all the babies under the age of two in that part of the world in order to get rid of Jesus. I, I remember another time when Jesus was in Nazareth, he was ministering in the synagogue among his own people. Uh, they would have known him well. They would have watched him grown up. He had lived there and grown up there. And he opened up to them the scriptures. And Luke chapter 4 records it for us. And the Bible says that Jesus read out of the book of Isaiah. And he closed the book and he said, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And what Jesus was saying was, I'm the one that Isaiah is talking about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. And he says, this day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he was saying, I'm the one who has come to preach the gospel to the poor and to give sight to the blind and to release the captives. And when he said that, the Bible tells us in Luke that they took him out to the brow of a hill and they would have thrown him off a cliff to crush him, to kill him, and he disappeared. He passed through their midst. A third time, they tried to kill him. And then John 5, I think it is, is where he's at the pool of Bethsaida. We're going to be getting to this in a few weeks. And there was a man there who'd been crippled for 38 years. And the Bible says that he healed that man. And immediately they sought to, a way to kill him because he had healed this crippled man of 38 years on the Sabbath. In John chapter 7, the temple police were sent to capture Jesus, that they might execute him. And they came back without Jesus, and all they could say was, never a man spoke the way he spoke. So, and I'm making a point here, they had been trying to kill him throughout his life, and especially during his earthly ministry just over a few short years. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, you seek to kill me, but in John chapter 8 and verse 20, 
it says, No man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. And again, I'm making the point, God had a specific time when he was going to die. In John chapter 10, it was wintertime, and Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he was walking on the porch of Solomon in the temple, and the Jews picked up stones and wanted to stone him on the spot, but the Bible says he escaped out of their hand. And then in John chapter 11, he came into the city of Bethany, and there he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he created such anger among the Jewish leaders that it says in verse 53, they met together and took counsel how to put him to death. The Jewish leaders got together and took counsel with one another. Can you imagine having this kind of a a deacon's meeting? How can we kill him? Or a church meeting? I mean, this they were furious with Jesus. They hated him. They hated the truth that he spoke. They hated his purity. They hated his power. They hated his popularity. They hated him. And they couldn't have him dead fast enough. Interestingly enough, all of this effort they put into trying to connive and consort to kill Jesus, and they can't kill him. And then when they say, we need to kill him, but we've got to get him alone away from the crowds, and we can't do it during the feast, the week of the feast. We can't do it over the Passover. And God says, that's when it's going to happen. In John 11, verse 57 The Bible says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, Jesus was, he should show it that they might take him. And so all of these so-called attempts to take his life were unsuccessful because it wasn't God's timing. And so they they didn't want to do it at this point. Again, 2.5 million people coming to Jerusalem. Many of them would have been from Galilee. And not everybody in Galilee liked Jesus. We know that. Some of them wanted him dead as well. But uh, not, uh, you know, not long before this time, you remember what's happened. They've been, they've been crying and palm branches are being waved. You're right. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And they're hailing him as the Messiah. They know he's a miracle worker. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He gives... He helps people who can't speak to speak. He raises those that are infirmed from their illness, and he gives life to the dead. And uh, this would have been the worst possible time from the leadership of the Jewish people. And yet they wound up killing Jesus against their own plans. They want to kill him. When they want to kill him, they can't. When they don't want to kill him, they do. And we see that that God is sovereign When I say that word sovereign, it means that God can do what he wants to do with what belongs to him. And you tell me something that does not belong to him. God can do what he wants to do with what belongs to him. And it was time. And this week, when you think of Jesus dying on that cross for your sins and for mine, do not lose sight of God's will in all of this. When you think of Jesus dying on that cross this Friday, and you're reminded of that, remember that God sent his son into the world to become sin for us. God sent his son into the world to die for you and for me. 
And our response to God's gift of eternal life through the death of his son, there ought to be a a wave of love and worship and adoration for God Almighty. It ought to drive us to our knees. It ought to drive us to our knees to say, God, thank you so much for loving a wretch like me, a sinner like me, who did not deserve your love. So God prepared Jesus for the cross, but there were others who played a role. And... uh, Notice in verse number 3, I I noticed this group of men who hated him so much. Verse 3. It says, Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas. So on the same night that Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples, telling them, Two days, and I'm going to be dead. On the same night, on this particular Wednesday, the Sanhedrin, or the ruling council of the Jews, they called a special meeting in the house or the palace of Caiaphas, and it was a massive place. Caiaphas, by the way, was a powerful man. There was no king in Israel in those days. Uh, Caiaphas would have been the most powerful man, really, in the region, amongst the Jews especially. He was also very powerful over, I think over a hundred-year period, there were over, I want to say there was around 25 high priests that held the office of a high priest over a hundred-year period. Caiaphas had held it for a, a good number of years. The guy who replaced Caiaphas only lasted, I think, like 50 days or something like that. So he was quite a politician as well. But he's a very powerful man, and they, and, and they meet together in Caiaphas' house, And they only have one thing in mind. And what is it? Well, look at verse number four. And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety. And the word subtlety means trickery and kill him. And these are these men, these hateful, Christ-rejecting men. They hate God. They hate Jesus. They love their political world. They love the power that comes with that. They can manipulate people. They think uh, massage egos, pay people off or just get rid of people, as we see they're trying to do with Jesus. Let's just get rid of him, make him disappear, and make our problems go away. This is the kind of men these men were. And they're plotting Jesus' death, only it's not going to come to pass, at least not in the way that they're thinking. Look at verse 5. But they, say, but they said, not on the feast day. Can't do it on Friday. Can't do it during the Passover, the week of Passover, these eight days, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so the politicians count the cost. They say, we know we want Jesus to be dead. Um, We're all in agreement about that. We want him to be dead, but we all agree that we're not going to do it in this particular window of time because it would reflect poorly upon us. (laughs) And God's looking at these wicked men, these rebellious, wicked, sinful men. Um, and maybe if, if they were in tune enough to hear, they might have known that he would have said, uh, you are going to do my will, but it's not going to be according to your will. You think, you think you're the one pulling the strings of your life. You think you're the ones controlling this. You think you're the one who's going to kill Jesus, but you're really not. I'm going to use you to to accomplish my will. 
And so in spite of their plan, God was going to work his plan. Now the Sanhedrin, this ruling body, while they're together, and by the way, they, they would have, by this time they would have had so much more of Jesus than they, than they could possibly stand. He intimidated them. The people were following Jesus. Many of the people were following Jesus. The Sanhedrin would have felt threatened. Caiaphas was insecure. Caiaphas' first name was Joseph. He was a wretched man, a vile man. He was conniving, treacherous, wicked, deceitful. And he's pictured in Scripture only in one role, interestingly enough. Every time you see Caiaphas in the Bible, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to kill Jesus. He had more power than anybody else. He wanted to get rid of Jesus. He wanted to get rid of his name. So he, Caiaphas, I think, is symbolic of how corrupt the religious system of Israel really was by this particular time. And when, when, I, when I'm talking to you and I'm mentioning these scribes and Pharisees and elders and high priests and priests, please keep it in the context. Much of what God had ordained the high priestly role and there is much good that you and I can learn about God and holiness and righteousness by studying the role of a high priest in the Old Testament. So don't just, when I, but by this time in history, it was so corrupt, okay? And you need to understand that. It hadn't always been that way. It had played a role. And so Caiaphas here, he's the one who's to carry out the the priestly function. He alone, Caiaphas, was the one who could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He carried out all the leadership and ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals, and along with him at this meeting, they're the chief priests. They're the leading priests. They're the ones second in command and beyond that. The captain of the temple, in charge of the temple police. And under him, there was the priest over the daily courses and the priest over the weekly course, and then there was the temple treasurer and the temple overseer, and, and that group made up the, the chief priest. And then there were the scribes, you see, in verse number 5, who were those who worked with the law, and the elders were those who were the nobility, having no priestly office, but being the leaders of the people that were sent to sort of rule and govern on behalf of the people. And so the envious hypocrite Caiaphas gets this group of men together and they've got to do something with Jesus and they hate him. And they've been rejecting him all along. And God had brought their hatred to a, such a pitch. And I think he had used the resurrection of Lazarus. And I think uh, he had used the hosannas to threaten their position of power and of course, Jesus had pronounced upon them, he, Jesus had called these men whited sepulchers. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's nothing more than dead men's bones, rotten to the core. That's not a compliment. And so if this was the Messiah, and we know that it was, they knew they were going to be deposed. They were going to lose their power. Jesus was threatened to destroy their whole system, to crush their system, to leave it desolate. And all of these things came to culminate 
a culmination, and they hated Jesus. And, you know, you and I can go through this week in preparation for remembering his death for us. We can go through this week with an arrogant rebellion hatred for the one who came to die for the sins of the whole world. Many people in our world today will go through this week like it is no different than any other week and like they live every day of their life, their lives in rebellion against God, living like there is no God, living like they can manipulate God. And that's the way these men lived. There's a second group, or really a second person, and that's in verse 6 and following, and I, I see that we can, we can prepare for his crucifixion and our remembrance of his crucifixion with loving worship. And this is my prayer for you. Look at verse number 6, and it's a woman, a very godly woman, someone who loved the Lord Jesus Christ so very, very sincerely. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. And I want to stop there for just a moment. Um, verse 1 down through verse 5 is taking place on a Wednesday. Verse 6, Matthew kind of takes us back in time a few days. John tells us that it took place on a Saturday, place a certain number of days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And it really is a beautiful scene because they're in this place uh, in Bethany, this town of Bethany, and they're in a particular house. It's a place where they're going to have a meal in the house of a man by the name of Simon. And you see there in verse number 6 how Simon is described. How is he described? He's described as Simon the what? A leper. Now, Simon was no longer a leper when this took place. We know that because if he were still a leper, nobody would be going to his house. He was a healed leper. He was a man who had been a leper. Now, leprosy in in Jesus' day was incurable. There was no cure for leprosy. If a person got it, they would ultimately die. There was no cure from leprosy. The only cure for leprosy was Jesus Christ, and Simon was showing his loving gratitude to Christ by offering him a meal. And many of us in this room... None of us, I don't think, have ever had leprosy, but all of us in this room have had an incurable problem called sin. Every one of us in this room have had that, where we deserve death and hell because of our sinfulness. And sin was destroying our lives in every way. So I think maybe we can understand a little bit what, what this day must have been like for Simon the leper. To have the one who had healed him in his home. The one who had made him whole again. The one who had restored him to his family. The one who had allowed him to live again. Who had given him his life. A man who really would have had, had lost his life without Jesus. So here we have in Simon's house an excitement, I think, that would have been unspeakable. A former leper, an outcast of outcasts, now having the very man who healed him, God in human flesh, in his own home, and hosting him. And he had invited Mary and Martha and Lazarus to be a part, and and the twelve men who followed Jesus. And there would have been about twenty, maybe more, But it was a good group of people. It's a lovely evening of gratitude and thanks and joyfulness. 
And Luke says in his account that Martha was doing. She was working. She was serving. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to serve the Lord. And I encourage you to take every opportunity to do it. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she was learning. She was learning. She was worshiping. She was listening. Sometimes I hear it said. I've heard it said before, don't soak in sour. But I want you to know something. There is no true, genuine service to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the life of a person who has not taken time to let the word of God just wash over him. why it's so important for you and for me to gather together and sit under the word of God and hear it taught and ponder it, not just once in a while, but over and over and over and over again, because if you haven't noticed, our lives are not static, our lives change. You realize that? From week to week, our perspectives change, we change. The word of God does not change. The spirit of God does not change, and he, he recalibrates us, and he helps grow us, and he brings us through trials and hardships and difficulties. It's so important for you and me for for us to sit under the word of God and hear it taught and learn it, not just in this kind of a formal setting, but in in our personal lives as well. You know, I think sometimes women put us men to shame in their desire and hunger for the word of God. We men, we can talk about the uh, sporting events that are going on in our world, and we can give statistics, and we do. We, re- we research, and, and for some, some of the things, it's for our work, you know. We, we work, and you, you know all about these sort of things, and you know the trajectory of a bullet and the impact point or hunting things and when the deer are moving and when they're not and how to, you know, and, and we know a lot of things, men, but sometimes women put us to shame in their discipline and their love for God and his word. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 41, which is a sister passage to Matthew 26, Jesus said to Martha, 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 thou art careful. You're full of care. You're so vexed. You're troubled about many things. And then Jesus says this, but one thing is needful, Martha. Just one. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I want you to know something. Worship is better than service. Now, we can, serve, we can worship God in our service. Okay? Don't get me wrong here. I've told you before, you can worship God in your marriage by how the kind of wife you are and the kind of husband you are and the way you minister and love and serve your spouse that God has given you. You can worship God. We can worship God and I can worship God by how I study the word of God and how I preach. But worship is better than service. Service can never replace worship. Learning God's word is better than being a doer. God tells, Christ tells Martha. Sitting at the feet of the Savior is better than business, being busy. 
Some of us are so very, very busy and we take very, very little time. We can barely squeeze it, squeak enough time into our week or a month to gather with the church on a Sunday morning once or twice. And that's about all we can squeeze out to sit because we're that busy. Look at verse number 7. There came unto him a woman. Now, Matthew doesn't give us her name. John tells us who it is. Remember, now, John, the Gospel of John was written, penned down about 80, 90 time frame. Matthew would have been penned down about 80, 50. So some have wondered, maybe Matthew didn't include Mary's name to protect her. I don't know. That's conjecture. But Matthew doesn't tell us her name. John does. There came unto him a woman, unto Jesus, having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat there eating. And so Matthew tells us, here comes this woman with a box, a bottle made out of alabaster, very thin. It would have been very fat or round. It would have had a very narrow neck. And it would have been plugged or sealed. And and, and Mary here has been sitting at the feet of Jesus. She understands that Jesus is moving to his death. And, And I do believe this, because later Jesus tells them this. Mary understood that Jesus was going to die. And I really don't think the disciples, the men, really were following him in this. They were not with it. Um... But she did. She understood something of his resurrection. Maybe she remembered. Maybe she'd been listening better along the way. And she remembered that every time he said he would die, he said, too, he would rise again. In Mark's account and in John's account, they say that she shatters the whole bottle, which has the idea of to break it in such a way that it could not be resealed again. Nothing of the contents could have been saved. It all was meant to be poured out upon Jesus. And it says in Matthew here in verse 7, she poured it on his head. John says that she poured it on his feet. And so from all of these accounts, we understood that we understand that Mary poured it all over him. And this is amazing, I think, this humble sacrifice of Mary. I'm amazed at the detail of this account because it's not theological. We're not so much learning more about God by what she does. We're learning more about how you and I ought to respond to God. It really describes for us, I think, how, how you and I ought to love our Savior. Mary's sacrifice is a great illustration of Christ-honoring love, a love that honors the Lord. This nard, this ointment, was a very rare herb grown in the high pasture lands of China. India. It wouldn't find its way into a home in Bethany unless it had been carried there by camels from India, far, far away. Because it came so far and because it was so pure, it was so very valuable. In fact, its value was known by the man who always thought only about the price of things. Judas knew exactly how much that was worth. 300 denarii. Almost a year's wage. Think about that. How much do you make in a year? Do you have a bottle of perfume in your house that's worth the amount of money that you make in a year? Do you have something like that sitting in? Of course you do. You bought it for your wife for her birthday. And you won't let her wear it. (laughs) 
Judas named the price in John 12. A denarius was a day's wage, and there were 300 days of work. That would have been at least worth 300 days of work, this one particular jar. It was very expensive. An alabaster jar, a white translucent stone that would would be carved out to contain this nard, this ointment. Maybe that's how it was shipped and delivered and kept since there was no embalming. In those days, it, it would be applied to a body of someone who had died and, and therefore would cut down on the stench, the decaying of the body, and the frag- fragrant oils were placed on the body. And this, is, this was something very valuable to the family. And Mary uses it on the Lord Jesus Christ before he's dead. Why? First John 4, 9 says, we love him because he first loved us. Can you, can you, get, do you get the sense of what's happening here? They're in Simon the leper's house. Can you imagine Simon? you imagine the love he has for Jesus? He's a dead man if Jesus doesn't save him. And now here's Mary, and she's pouring all this out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. She's loving him. She's, she's loving him. Why? Because he loves her. And Mary's heart was overflowing with this love and overflowing with this gratitude. And all of a sudden, she, verse 7, kind of indicates to us, she just kind of rushes to find this wherever it was in a safe place. And she bursts out in love and really unable to hold it back anymore, unable to restrain herself. And she pours it out upon the Lord. The other accounts say that she then loosened her hair, which was a radical thing for a woman to do in the presence of men in, in those days. And she used her hair to wipe his feet. Now, foot washing was... Not abnormal, it would have been normal. And foot washing at a meal was part of the meal because people had sandals and there was no pavement, right? Dirty feet didn't sit, suit well, people sitting down reclining in a reclining position. They didn't sit at the table like you and I did. They would recline on their side and they would eat and their feet were a part of the event. So foot washing was something that was needful. But for a woman to take her hair and let it down and use it to wipe off his feet. And it really was an amazing expression of sacrifice and love. Mary's actions were shocking. I don't know that we love the Lord as freely as we ought to love him. Uh, and I, it's good to be analytical. It's good to consider. It's good to count the cost. Follow biblical wisdom. Is right and always is right. She just covers him with the whole thing. Twelve ounces of costly perfume that takes a years a year to earn. That's expensive, and maybe. We're thinking here this morning, well, what in the world made her do this? That's a little much. I think Mary got a little carried away. You know women, they get carried away. No, I think it's an act of love. Unrestrained act of love. I love him so much. What has he done for you? What have you? How have you benefited by the sacrifice that he made for you? 
What has he given you? Or are you like me when I was a teenager in my youthful years? When the pastor would talk about the inheritance that I have in Christ, I would sit there ignorantly trying to think of one or two things that I possibly could have as an inheritance that Jesus had given me. She was honoring him, and she was so absolutely adoring of him, and so absolutely controlled by her worship of him, and it was right because he was and is God. She couldn't handle restraint. And I asked myself the question this week, do I understand her love? Do I worship the Lord this way? I think most often we worship the Lord in a way that we count and we say, what can I afford? What kind of a worship can I afford to give to him? I'll give what I can afford. I'll give what won't affect me. And I think sometimes we know very little about this kind of unrestrained adoration where she rushes in and she breaks the thin neck of that alabaster box, crushes it so that it can never be resealed again. She pours its contents all over Jesus. And really she was pouring out her love and her heart of compassion, her devotion, He was honoring the one who was going to die and rise again for her salvation, the one who was going to bear her sins. And I wonder if we were there on that particular day, if we had been there, knowing what we know now, I wonder if we would have poured out everything on him too. She understood what the disciples didn't want to understand. She wasn't bound up in wanting to get right into the kingdom and have a place of prominence and glory and honor. She apparently understood more of Jesus' teaching than they did. And I really think Mary is a picture to us of the outpouring of love that God desires from you and me. And we're not alone in our misunderstanding of this, because look at verses 8 and 9. When his disciples saw it, this love of hers, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? When they saw her love and her worship for the Savior, they said, what a waste. For this ointment might have been sold for much and have given to the poor. Now, John 12 tells us that Judas was the one who got this going. But it is a little disappointing that the other disciples didn't have more clarity. I love practical people. And we ought to be practical people. But we ought not be practical in our love for our Savior. You understand what I mean by that? He says, Judas says, this, would, this could have been throw, sold for 300 denarii. It could have been put in a bag and 
what, stuck in your robe, Judas? <laughs> you weren't going to give it to anybody. Jesus called him a thief. In John 12 and verse 7, Jesus looked at Judas and said, Let her alone. And here in verse number 10, look here in Matthew in verse 10, And when Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. Why are you putting burdens on this woman? Why are you, literally, why are you furnishing her a burden? Why are you making Mary feel bad? You know, friends, it ought not be our goal to make one another feel bad, to guilt one another. You know, every one of us in our lives, we have different burdens. There are different trials. We have different ministry responsibilities. God's called us. He's appointed us to carry out different workloads and different responsibilities. And just because someone else is not carrying the same workload or does not bear the same call in, our li- in their life as we bear in our lives, does that mean that we should accuse one another? Of, why, don't you, why don't you feel as burdened as I do? And Jesus says, why are you putting the burden on her? Why are you furnishing her this burden? Why are you trying to make her feel bad and guilty as if this is some sort of a wrong thing? And he says it in verse 10, she hath wrought a good work upon me. And really what he was saying, what she's done is excellent. It is outwardly beautiful. Jesus is saying this, so it means something. What she has done, it is magnificent. It is a lovely thing that she has done. And then he says this in verse 11, For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. You're always going to have the poor. And the Bible is very careful to say we need to meet the needs of the poor. And Jesus is not undermining or overturning that teaching. But he was just saying to his disciples, you don't have the right priority. Your priority is wrong. And this week, we can prepare in remembering his sacrifice for us by sitting at his feet and by listening to him and pondering his teaching and worshiping him and loving him and obeying him. Really what Jesus was saying was this is a priority. There's a time for worship and there's a time for charity. There's a time for programming. There's a time for worship. There's a time for ministry. There's a time for worship. There needs to be a time for worship. And as much as we should pour out what we possess on those who have need, so we should pour it out in an act of worship to God alone. And I really think an adoring act of worship is the supreme act that any Christian could ever do. And truly, our worship is not something that's limited to a Sunday morning service or a Sunday night service. It ought to be in our marriage. It ought to be in our child training with our children. It ought to be in, in if you're involved in a program or if you're in the workplace and you're in the work, work, workplace of, that is secular and there's no Christian influence there, there's no influence of Christ there except for you, you can worship the Lord in that place. In verse 12, notice, For in that she had poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. And somehow, Mary did this in an act of preparation. She knew what Jesus Christ was going to go through. And this was her way of 
of, of showing love to Christ. And that's what he says. This is her way of showing me that she loves me. Mary seemed to know that Jesus was going to die. And she couldn't prevent his death. And I don't think she ever would have wanted to prevent his death, knowing if she understood what you and I know. His death was for her. And his death was for all of us as sinners. And she poured out her love. And where it says there that she poured it out, it's a very strong term. It has the idea of profusely or lavishly. And that's what Jesus says. She just gave it all. Verse 13. Verily I say unto you, Jesus says, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall be this, there, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Mary's memorial was this. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was willing to give. And she cherished him. And she adored him. And she worshipped him. Openly. Even though other people might look at how she loved God and say, what a waste. She didn't care. We're not going to take much time, but I want to read, look look at verses 14 and following. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest. So this is his response to this love that Mary has for her, her Lord and Savior. And what does Judas describe? How can we describe Judas? Well, he is covetous, he's bitter, he's disenchanted, he's disappointed with the way this religion is working out. And he's completely unthankful. Now, I I know I just described Judas, but I'm going to say those words again, and I want you to think about yourself in light of the crucifixion of Christ this week. And I want you to think about yourself, not so much Judas. Covetous, bitter, disappointed, and unthankful. You know what it led to? It led to a betraying hypocrisy. A man who claimed to love Christ but didn't love him at all. And he runs off the priests, chief priests, and he says unto them, what, in verse 15, what will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? You know, I could have had a year's worth of wages, but this woman just blew that, and this thing is coming unraveled, and I know you want him. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Exodus tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the cost of a slave. You can have him for the cost of a slave. He means nothing to me. And from that time, Judas sought opportunity to betray him. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday... Wednesday, Thursday, just waiting for the right opportunity. It's 
Let me close with this. There are only three ways to approach Jesus' death this week. There's hateful rejection. You can reject him. You can hate him. You can deny him. You can ignore him like Caiaphas and the priests and the scribes and the elders. There's loving worship. You can stand with Mary. You can love him. You can break the neck of the bottle and you can pour out and you can say, Lord, this is my life. This is it. This is all I've got. This is everything I have. This is all you've made me to be. And Lord, take my life. Thank you for giving your life for me. And Lord, as I think about your love for me, I'm going to break the bottle. I'm not going to keep any contents. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm just going to say, Lord, here it is. I'm not perfect. But if you'll have me, if you'll use me, if you'll guide me in your word, if you'll comfort me and console me, if you'll lead me by your Holy Spirit, here's my life. Use me in my family. Give me wisdom through life. Shine through me. We can love him. Or we can stand with Judas who claimed that he belonged, but he never did. Would you take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 276? We'll close with a hymn. Hymn number 276. I'm going to ask that we sing all four stanzas. It's a short hymn, and then we'll be dismissed.